You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Leif Dahlin. I'm Diana Merriam. I'm Jess from the Pioneers. And this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. My ideas about FIRE, financial independence retire early, have evolved. At first, I would do just about anything to save a buck. I charge my electric car at the dealer for free almost every day, taking advantage of the coffee instead of paying for Starbucks. Looking back, the wasted hour was probably worth about $500 to a busy doctor. I had dreams of retiring early and planned to fire our nanny and housekeeper and do the work myself, work that, it turns out, I had little real interest in doing. Yet, as the years pass, I am changing. I spend more frivolously and worry less about frugality. I even enjoy working from time to time, dare I say, to make money. I, and many like me, have become enamored with the idea of lifestyle design, value spending, and even delaying our financial independence milestones. But in doing so, maybe a privilege of being high-income earners, some would say that we have abandoned our roots. A quote from an email that one of our guests recently received, Once again, I realize that the old days of the FIRE movement are over, and now it's about showing off quality of life and value spending. I feel like it is not my community anymore. Whether you agree or not, the commenter brings up an important question that we will strive to answer today. Has the FIRE movement become elitist? Diana Miriam, the founder of Economy LLC, was motivated to start a conference after the pursuit of fire changed her life. After she discovered the blogs like Mr. Money Mustache and Frugal Woods, as well as books such as Your Money or Your Life and The Simple Path to Wealth, she used her newfound knowledge to get out $30,000 of debt. She is the host also of the Optimal Finance Daily podcast. Leif Dahlin is an early retired anesthesiologist and leading voice in the personal finance and financial independence worlds. He created the Physician on Fire blog and persona, which chronicled his beliefs and teachings about good money management as well as early retirement. Jessica, along with her husband, Corey, are the dynamic duo who go by the name The Pioneers. They started their blog, TheFioneers.com, in 2018 to chronicle their journey to financial independence. On the way, they coined the term SlowFi to describe their approach. Jessica also is the creator of the SlowFi Facebook group and Yearly Retreat. Diana, Leaf, and Jessica, welcome back to Earn and Invest. Diana, I want to start with you. Actually, you pitched me the idea for this episode, and it really spurs from feedback you recently received about the price of your conference, the Economy Conference. What was that feedback? So I'll start out by saying that I think you know all of us on this panel are business owners. And we really value feedback from the people that we serve. It's extremely important to get feedback from the people that you serve. 
And I know for myself, you know, I produced the economy conference. And one of my favorite things is after the event to read through, I spend an, a, a lot of time reading through my post-event survey results. And this community just gives me su- such amazing critical criticism. What's the word? I'm not constructive criticism. Constructive criticism. And it makes me so much better. It makes the event better. It's incredibly important. These emails that I received are not constructive criticism. They're just criticism from people that aren't my customers. And you know, the first email, which I'll read, when I received it, it was really easy for me to, to dismiss it because um, it just felt like it was just some stranger that I've never met letting me know that he's not coming to my conference. And I was like, all right. You know, like this isn't an airport, you know, you don't have to announce your departure. But it, so it was really easy to dismiss this one and I'll read it to you. It just says, holy crap, 430 bucks for general admission. And I thought the fire community was for frugal people, but it's becoming elitist. I would really like to attend, but for 50 bucks tops. And, you know, that I find this email to be wildly disrespectful and rude. But you know what? I can't control what other people do. All I can control is my response. And I wanted to be able to respond and not react, right? Because my reaction is, fuck you, dude, right? That That's that's my reaction. That is the split second emotional, yeah. And when I try to, like, when I read that and I just kind of said to myself, he doesn't know what it costs me to produce this thing. He doesn't know that it costs me $100,000 to produce this event and that I am undercharging. I took a 40 grand loss on my first conference. I am barely breaking even, and this business is not financially viable long term, right? But he doesn't know all, any of that. He doesn't know what the experience is, right? He thinks it's just a social get together, right? Just like what we do, we do local meetups that are free and they're just social meetups that we do at a library. It's not a $100,000 event. He doesn't understand what he would be paying for. And so he's just kind of showing his ignorance. And I don't say that as like a insult. It's just he's ignorant about what the event is. He didn't do enough research. Fine, right? Easy for me to dismiss that. And I just kind of laughed it off. But then this next email, and so this this happened like a week ago, I think I sent this to you. It was like one day I got this email and then the very next day I got the second email. And this one, and I'm going to read it in a second, but you know, we've got some doctors on the panel here. I wear an aura ring that tracks my heart rate. And when I read this email, <laughs> my heart rate shot up to 142. And actually it's it's going up right now as I'm thinking about reading you this email. And so I'm going to read it. And then I'm going to tell you how I decided to respond and not react. She says, I was so excited about economy after listening to the latest episode of Choose Fi. But when I came to this website to sign up, I got so frustrated. Half a grand for this conference that you said in the podcast is more about connecting than about learning stuff. Really? Once more, I realized that the old days of the fire movement are over. And now it's about showing off quality of life and value spending. And both of those terms, quality of life and value spending are in like quotes. I'm doing air quotes over here. I feel like this is not my community anymore. Where are those who seek fire through saving and living well below their means? It seems everyone in the community is already at fat fi or a multimillionaire. And we beginners or or struggling low middle class are left out once again. Sorry about the rant, but I wish I... but I wish so badly I had a place in this community. 
And Diana, let me stop you for a moment. Before you say how you responded, I want to get Jess and Leaf's input yeah, based sorry, on I'm hearing this. Jess, so what do you think about both of those both of those emails? Because I know this hits us right where we live when it comes to content production about kind of lifestyle design. How did you read those emails? So Diana actually shared these with me prior to the call. And, you know, they they struck me. I don't know, in in a I'm not sure if it's in a different way than Diana, but it definitely fired me up and made me like a little bit frustrated about it. And I actually shared too a response that I got recently. I shared my SloFi event, the ChooseFi Facebook group in Boston specifically. And someone said, that's much more expensive than expected. And then someone responded and said, big ups for the hot takes. I'm going to be hosting a lean slash fast buy retreat at my house and it'll be free and have dumpster pizza and weed. <laughs> right. And then, you know, and then, you know, my response, not my reaction, but my response was, that's fair. Like, this is an event that will not be for everyone. But like, the price is what it is because it's a facilitated experience. It's all inclusive. You get lodging, you get food for the weekend, you get everything. I'm, you know, covering the costs for speakers to attend, right? All of those things. And then the person responded and said, I'd be down to meet with others who are on a fire path and just chat without much structure in place. But seriously, a $200 weekend getaway at a cabin. And I was like, what in what world do could you go on a weekend getaway for $200? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm, I'm very confused about that. Like, it's it's. Yeah, it's like people are asking us to give away free labor and almost like pay for them to do stuff. And that, you know, and and that I think the thing that like gets me is like I think it's okay for people for us to run different kinds of events at different price points. And I think that people would probably say that my slow fi retreat is at a higher price point, but I want it to feel like people are going to a beautiful retreat at a lakeside, mountainside resort that they're going to be able to like unwind and have a relaxing time and really enjoy themselves and have everything taken care of. And I guess I don't really see that as much different than... Like some people value taking a nice vacation and some people would prefer to go camping, right? And and that it's, I think it's okay either way. But the thing that frustrates me is when people ask us to give them free labor. Leif, I'm wondering your thoughts on this. I mean, at the beginning of what we now call the FIRE movement, there was a lot of free content, right? There were a lot of free courses, free blogs, free podcasts. Have we been a little bit maybe spoiled in that everything was so easy and forthcoming and, and really spoke to our idea of frugality? Maybe, but what was there in the beginning is still there, right? It's, it's still on the internet. The podcasts are still being produced and still cost no money to listen to. So, you know, the way I look at it, you know, it's like Warren Buffett says with investing, there are no called strikes. You don't have to swing at every pitch. So you heard a pitch for the economy conference, 
yeah, let it go by. You heard a pitch for the slow five retreat. You don't have to do it. It's it's probably not for you. If it makes you feel better somehow to reach out to the founders and make them feel bad, then, you know, you probably should be talking to a, a therapist or a good friend about your troubles and not not just viewing nastiness uh, on the internet. And, you know, to Jess and Diana's credit, they're they're not making huge profits, you know, maybe taking a large loss, as, as Diana said on the first conference. So they're basically charging cost or cost plus a little bit because it's a lot of labor, a lot of effort and a lot of risk when you put something like, like this together. So, yeah, I, I think it's true that early on we heard a lot about lean fi and that was sort of the the approach of mr money mustache and justin at root of good and mad scientist and those individuals are now 10 plus years older than they were back then they have more resources now maybe they have families or their family dynamic has changed all of that is different so if you're looking at those same people that you were looking at 10 years ago well of course they're more wealthy and yes they have evolve their thoughts on what money is for and how it should be used as you have Jordan, as I have too. And so it's not that we're becoming elitist. It's just that the sort of founders or or people that made it popular a decade ago are in a different place now, but there are many people who are still beginning and, and there still is, I think a place for, for them too. They just have to realize that they're at the beginning of, of the spectrum and, you know, when I had Physician on Fire, I always said I felt bad for people who were discovering this when they're still in medical school, when they're still a resident, and they know they're years away from making any you know, real money and, you know, maybe decades away from financial independence being a genuine possibility. Almost better to be blissfully ignorant until I discovered what financial independence was and did the math and was like, oh, yeah, I'm pretty much there. It's not a long slog from from here, you know. It, it, you know, it begs this interesting question, does all fire eventually evolve into fat fire? And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But I want to get back to you, Diana, and, and tell us about how you responded, because I think this is kind of important. Obviously, the criticisms come. So how did you feel was the best way to respond to this? Well, I took my dog for a walk. That was the first <laughs> thing I did. And, you know, I was so tempted to respond to these emails and explain to these people why they were wrong you know and explain how i how i came up with my price and the fact that i'm undercharging you know and explain that you know i used to give a money a 100% money back guarantee cuz i knew if i could just get you in the room you were going to like it i'm very proud of what i created i've never had anyone take me up on that so i was going to offer them that and i was going to show them all the reviews of people saying I got way more value out of it than the money that I spent. You know, I, I but then I I I realized that that is an emotional reaction and that I was never going to convince these people to value what I created. So then I started thinking about and this is a friend of all of ours Jillian Johnsrud wrote a book called Fire the Haters. And there was a part in the book where she says when you create something, when you're an entrepreneur, when you're an influencer creator, you you have to be willing to be misunderstood. It's the only way your art is going to get out there because it's not going to appeal to everyone and you're going to get shitty emails. And like you just have to accept that that's part of it, but don't let it kill your ability to create. It's a very important to preserve 
your ability to keep creating. And so I thought about her and I actually talked to her last week about this too and thanked her again for writing that book. Because before reading that book, I would get an email like this and I would crumble under the criticism. And so then I started thinking, okay, I I can't write them back. I'm never going to convince them. And frankly, they don't deserve a response from me. And I don't say that in like a rude way. I just it's that's a self-respect thing and maintaining my own boundaries. They didn't ask me a question. They sent me a disrespectful email and I don't feel the need to respond to them directly. However, Jordan, you've been on my list for a while that I wanted to get back on your show, but I, I've been on your show so many times that it's like, I need something new to talk about if I'm going to get back on here. I don't want to just repeat myself. And so I thought, okay, I don't need to respond to them, but I want to respond to this topic and and to be able to kind of process this experience with people that get me and that I trust, I thought it could really lead to a a really valuable discussion. And so that's why I sent it to you. And it felt like this shitty circumstance led to, you know, checking something off my list, allowing me to reconnect with friends and creating an episode of your show that could be valuable to other creators. So I just liked the whole idea of that being a response versus a reaction. Not just other creators, but I'm also interested in the community in general, right? So I think we're there's a small group of us creators who get really deep into these conversations. But I'm wondering, too, how that interface between us as creators who are putting these things together and then the community as a whole, because I think... You know, movements change based on what the creators create and then how people then consume what's created and pivot, agree with, disagree with, etc. So let's jump to some of the basics. Jess, first and foremost, frugality. I mean, is frugality being overdone? I mean, it's always been a big criticism of the FIRE movement from outside, right? This is over frugal. You're keeping yourself from having experiences. You're taking it too far, But in a sense, some of us, especially those of us who've been around for a while and have lived this life for a while, we also seem to be chiming in and and getting on the bandwagon with the people outside the community. Is there an issue with the fire community with over-frugalizing? I think that people get to do and spend their money however they would like to, right? And in general, I do think that the the frugality and the what looked like deprivation to me was the thing that originally turned me off from financial independence and the early retirement movement in the first place. I wasn't ready to get on board right away because I didn't want to grind it out, deprive myself, eat beans and rice, bike everywhere, never go on trips or do anything fun, right? Like that's what the fire movement seemed like to me. And I know that's a caricature now, but when I sort of jumped in, I decided like, that's not the approach that I'm going to take. I'm not willing to grind it out. I'm not willing to like set aside all of the things that I want to do to be able to retire early. And I'll be honest, like I have felt like an outsider in the fire movement. Like sometimes I feel like I go to events and it's like people are actively trying to get out of conversations with me 
because I like don't want to talk about the frugality piece or I don't want to talk about like tax strategies. Like I want to talk about life. I want to talk about what cool trips you've gone on, what your passions are. Like I want to know everything besides the money piece because in my mind, like having our money in order enables us to live the rest of our lives. And and so I always like I I very much felt like an outsider in fire spaces. I actually feel like things are starting to shift a little bit where the fire movement now is less focused on the frugality, retire early, grind it out, right? All of those things. And that I actually feel like I've finally been able to find a subset of people that that I really can identify with. Yeah. So to me, like the goal of financial independence, you know, really should be to kind of get to a sort of a post money kind of place where it isn't the primary concern um, and that you don't focus so much on budgeting. Like I never budgeted in the sense that I used envelopes or said I have this X you know, amount of money to spend on this category. I did for the sake of the blog track my spending just to kind of show, okay, yeah, we're truly financially independent. Um, but now I don't even do that. And I think that that's where, at least for me, financial independence gives you all kinds of different freedoms, including time and location, but also freedom from money concerns. And so that's why I, I do like the idea of getting to, you know, an, a beyond fi kind of a you know, fat fireplace, if you want to call it that, where, where money is no longer the primary concern. It's a huge part of becoming financially independent. But then you get to graduate and be in a place where, you know, frugality is not so important to your future. And, you know, in terms of the elitist accusations, I don't know, I come from a place where elite is kind of a good word. Like, <laughs> as Jordan knows, the I'm a college football fan. The Golden Gophers are my team. I spent eight years at the University of Minnesota. And Jordan and I have been to two football uh, games together, Gopher games in uh, both Evanston and Minneapolis. And so our coach, PJ Fleck, it, it, he embraces the word elite. He loves that word. He wants his players to be elite in the classroom and elite on the gridiron. And elite is a very positive term that, that you know, in, in the way he uses it. And I think everybody in the fire movement, from one end of the spectrum to the other, lean fire, fat fire, slow fire, coast fire, whatever it is, there's something elite about everyone in the movement. Because, you know, I read J.L. Collins' most recent book. Pathfinders, and he talks, of, well, a hundred some different people talk about their different paths, their paths to wealth, and they're all doing something that you could call elite, whether it's spending very little on a normal income, being entrepreneurial and creative, and making quite a bit of money, you know, it could be because ultimately it's about your savings rate. But in their own ways, maybe they're getting started at 52 from scratch, but they're making great strides towards financial independence. They're all doing something elite. So I don't think we should be like talking about how that's such a bad thing. I guess it's just like being special can be good or bad, depending on how you mean it, right? I, I think the thing, same thing is true of, uh, of being elite. This kind of initial question of, is fire all about frugality? I think there's also a lot of confusion around interchanging the word frugal and the word cheap. Right. I think there's a big difference between the two. And so to me, cheap 
is what these emails are about. These people are cheap. They never want to spend money, right? I think frugal is about optimizing your spending. It's about being really efficient and mindful about the value you are getting in exchange for your money. That to me is frugal and it's a good thing. I also think that that the way you apply that concept of being frugal everyone's super unique, right? Everyone has different circumstances, preferences, level of income. What frugal is to me is going to look very different than what frugal is to a fancy doctor. You know, I think that when you have a, a, a lens of cheapness, it's really easy to kind of not be able to appreciate the shades of gray and the uniqueness that each person can use to apply these concepts. I also think that when it comes to fire, the only thing we agree on is to spend less than you earn and invest the difference. That is the only commonality that we all have, whether you're lean fire or fat fire or whatever, right? Coast fire, slow fire, the only thing that matters is to spend less than you earn. There isn't, you know, I heard, heard people will say like fire, they save over 50% of their income. That's not even a rule, right? If you save anything, if you save more than the average five to 10% that, you know, the, the, the best of the best and the, the, the general population are saving, you are doing it. You're doing excellent. Yeah. You are elite. If, if you're saving 15, 20, 30%, it, there are no rules here. And so I think that's another kind of myth of the fire movement. And again, every myth has like a little element of truth to it, but I, there are no rules. There are no, this is a fi, this is a, this is a good fi way to spend. And this is not, if that makes sense. So my original sort of gripe with the fire movement was about frugality. And then over time, I've learned that it is a lot more about intentional spending and that frugality really actually means like that you're getting requisite value for the like amount of money that you're putting into it. And I really like the like Ramit Sethi's way of talking about intentional spending. So spend extravagantly on the things that you absolutely love that add value to your life and cut costs mercilessly on the things that you don't. Um, because there are certainly things in my life that I think people would say are overly frugal, right? Like I have cut my husband's hair for the last 15 years because- I cut my wife's hair. Now that's he cuts my hair too because I that I I don't value going to a hair salon and like it's just not that hard and like we groom our dog ourselves you know we drive older cars we live in a smaller home we you know we rarely go out to eat or get takeout I really like to cook we make really good food and that allows us to then spend extravagantly on the things that we love and stay within our means, right? And so we have been able to buy and build out a camper van and we traveled for six months out of the year this year, right? And so I feel like sometimes there's this I don't know. There's this feeling that like, if you're fire, you shouldn't be spending money, you know? And I, or if you're focused on fire, you shouldn't be spending money. Like someone recently told me like, oh, I would love to get a camper van, but that's not a really like fire thing to do. And it's like, why is that not a fire thing to do if 
the per like to me, the purpose of fire is to use your money to design the life that you want. And if that includes traveling around in a camper van, then that is actually a really good investment in your in your happiness, possibly in your relationships, and you know, in yourself. You know, Jess, I want to expand on this because I think I am just coming to terms with why value spending is so difficult. Like, I think we can all agree, spend according to your values, spend on the things that matter to you. But what I'm realizing is it's actually really hard to figure out what matters to you. And so I think that's why there is this tension and why we see even in these emails that I read, these people are expressing, I really want community. I really want to do this. Well, if that was true, that you really, really want that, then you would happily spend the money. Right. So one thing that I really value is my friends and family. I I just spent extravagantly on Christmas gifts. And, you know, me and Brad have this phrase that we say to each other all the time. And I call him Brad. I mean, he's my Midwestern gentleman. Why the hell did I call him Brad? You know, we say to each other, This is why we have money. Whenever something's expensive, we say, This is why we have money. Does this allow us to connect with someone we love? Done. Easy. Let's let's spend that, let's swipe the credit card right now, right? And so I think what's challenging about value spending is you have to have this like really, you have to be really rooted in a strong sense of self. You have to have intrinsic motivation. You have to know who you are on a really deep level. And that's like, uh, that's a, a, that's I've been a person like a self-help junkie my entire life. I le- read so many books on personal development and becoming, you know, the the best version of myself. And I'm just starting to scratch the surface on what that really means. And so if you are out of touch with who you really are, you have no idea what your values are and how can you spend according to them. We are talking to Jessica from the Pioneers, Diana Miriam from the Economy Conference, and Leif Dahlin, formerly the physician on fire. And we are talking about whether the fire movement has become elitist. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. 
LinkedIn Sales Navigator is a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenues, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date, first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash earn. That is linkedin.com slash E-A-R-N for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash earn and get started. We are back with Jess from the Pioneers, Diana Miriam, and Leif Darlene, and we are talking about the FIRE movement and how we have evolved or not evolved on our ideas of frugality and even elitism. We've been dancing around this idea of value spending, and Leif, you know, you were one of the first people I heard use the fat FIRE term, and I think one of the things that when I read these emails that Diana got is this idea that all fire has become fat fire. And I'm trying to differentiate that from this idea of lifestyle design and and value spending. In a sense, shouldn't all fire then be fat fire? If we're interested in kind of value spending, how do we differentiate? And and are we really moving towards a fat fire world? I think it really depends on how you define fat fire, but I don't don't think so. I I think the answer is no uh, to the question because... The way I look at fat fire, and there's really kind of two ways to look at it. You can either say it's a a number, so spending of you know a hundred thousand for a couple or a hundred and fifty thousand for a family of four or something like that per year, and the pile of money it takes to support that that's fat fire. Or some people look at it as a having way more than a twenty five or a thirty x multiple of your spending. So if your spending is fifty thousand a year, but you have five million dollars, well, you're fat fire even if you're not maybe spending a lot of money, but you're spending intentionally and enjoying life. That's not necessarily a realistic goal for, for everyone in society, everyone in the FIRE movement. There are people that hate their jobs or love their freedom so much that they would rather live somewhat lean, have to say no to certain experiences, but have the freedom of time, uh, you know, financial independence, location independence, and do their own thing knowing there will be certain limitations because they are not and never want to be in that fat fire situation with the amount of money and, and resources that that, that that requires. So that was really helpful to hear the definitions of, of fat fire because even with both of those, I don't ever plan to be either of those, right? Like I don't think I will ever be fat fire. I don't, I don't spend $100,000 a year. I don't plan to spend $100,000 a year. Like we're taking a a coast fi approach. So I don't feel like I'll ever need to really have 25 times my, more than 25 times my, my income because we plan to work and cover our expenses until we're in our 50s, right? And so I, I, so I don't feel like that fat fire necessarily applies in, in our case. But it, but one thing that's interesting is 
it depends on what you want, right? It goes back to what Diana was saying in like, what are your values? What do you want your life to be like? What do you like? What do you want to spend your time doing? What's required for that? Right. And so, you know, my husband and I have figured out that what's required for that is not fat fire. And people sometimes look at our lives and they, they're they like, oh, you must be fire already. And it's like, no, we're not. We've just figured out how to design our lives along the way and figure out work that's going to work for us in that context to cover our expenses, allow us to save a little bit and give us freedom, right? And And my husband and I were actually talking about this the other night you know, just in terms of like holiday gifts and, you know, feeling like, unlike Diana, I hate hol- I hate giving holiday gifts. I'd rather spend time with people. But we were talking about how it feels like everyone we know hasn't, not everyone we know, but many of our closest friends have an excess of money and not enough time. And we have an excess of time. And some might say not enough money, right? To to do, I, I feel like we have enough money to do all of the things that we want, but we don't have enough money to do all of the things that are expected of us from society. And so, I, and I would so much rather have an excess of time than an excess of money. So Diana, let's bring this into the context of a conference goer, right? Because I think there are two ways to look at this, right? One side is people like us who are the content creators. You're creating a conference, so you have to decide what the right price point is. Discuss how you do that. And then if you can, try to discuss the other side. When you are a conference goer, how do you decide whether it's worth your your money, right? To put down, let's say, $420 or $430 to go to a conference. How do you make that calculation? And I'd like you to try to look at it from both sides. Sure. So I'll start with how I came up with my price point. I think there, when you create something, there is a tension between how much money do I need for my creative vision to come to life and to create what I want to see in the world? And what will the market bear in terms of what a customer is willing to spend? So there's a tension between those two things. And I, the way I came up with my price point is I looked at what might be considered a competitive set. So what are other conferences charging? What are other similar experiences charging for this, for, for what they offer? And not just within this niche of financial independence, but I have gone to so many events through my corporate career, through just like I'm, I have an interest in personal development. So, like for example, one event that I really liked is called uh, HustleCon. It was a one day event, and it was five hundred dollars. Another event that I love to go to that doesn't exist anymore, and I modeled my conference after this event: World Domination Summit, seven hundred dollars. And I think seven hundred was like the the early bird ticket. You know, I think it probably went up from there. So I knew that people were willing to spend that much if it was a really well done event, right? So if I'm going to ask for that much, I got to deliver. But that was kind of my frame of reference. And then I'm looking at what Camp Five charges. And then I'm looking at, you know, things like FinCon. Um, so my first conference, I actually charged $99. And that's why I took a 40 grand loss. I knew it wasn't enough, but I was just... I just had a gut feeling if I could get people in the room and and for them to take a chance on me because I it, I I didn't have a following no one knew who I was right and so I'm just this 
person who comes out of a out of the blue and tries to gather hundreds of people in a room, you're taking a risk on me. I don't I don't have a, a history of success to show you. And so then that was successful. So now I have a history of success and I I gradually have increased the price to try to manage that tension between my creative vision and what I think the market will bear. I'm up to 399 as full price for a ticket for economy right now. I don't want to go over 500. That to me just feels like the sweet spot of if you are paying 500 to come to my conference, you will leave feeling like you got a deal. And that's what I I want to far exceed your expectations with my price point. Price points are interesting because you know, you charge too little and people will assume, well, it must not be that great. You know, you know, maybe $99. Well, they must not have decent speakers and it must be at a crappy venue and, and, and whatever, you know, that that's the thought. I have a friend who has a, a lawn game called rollers. And he, he said when he charged 20 bucks for it, he didn't sell many, but he raised the price to like 50 bucks. And now they sell really well because a lot of people are looking for like a $50 gift for, for Christmas or graduation or whatever it might be. It's the same item, but price point matters. And I think, you know, we all know people that sell online courses and they experience kind of the same thing. They're like, well, I want to charge maybe $500 for this online course, but, you know, maybe they, people only pay $99 or whatever. But if you charge 99, people think it must not be worth much. I don't know. It's just, there's a lot of perception from the other side that goes into uh, what people are willing to pay and, and what they think the product will be based on the offering price. Uh, I totally agree with all of that, especially because I also, I'm a customer of events, right? So the other part of your question, Jordan, is like being on the other side of it. How do you determine that you're willing to spend that money? And I would say that the ticket price when you go to the event is the lowest barrier to entry. And over time, I've noticed that I started to like I used to feel kind of guilty that I was asking for too much because I don't offer any food. You know, you still have to pay for your hotel and your air, you know, your flight and everything. So I kind of I've struggled over the years of determining what's f- a fair price point because I know that the ticket price is the lowest barrier to entry entry. When you go to an event, you're likely going to even if if the cost is four or five hundred dollars, you're gonna walk away spending. all in, right? And so that is a piece of it too, of knowing that there are other costs aside from my ticket cost. About 70% of economy attendees fly in for the event. A lot of people think it's just a regional thing. It is a national conference. And so I'm mindful of that as well. When it comes to me making the decision to go to an event, I recognize that you know, as much as we, I want to get the appropriate amount of value for the money that I'm spending, there's always a risk because a lot of times you won't know that it was worth the money until afterwards. And so you have to decide if you are willing to take that risk. I mean, there are some events that I'd love to go to, but it's $10,000. And like, I just don't know if I'm willing to make that, take that risk. Right. But for 700 to, you know, $2,000? Sure. I just went to an event, a thing earlier this month that was $6,000. And I think they're undercharging. (laughs) You know, so it's just, it's really hard to say. And there are times, like the first time I went to World Domination Summit, I didn't like it. I I didn't think I was going to go again. And 
I was with a new friend and she was like, just buy your ticket. And then if you change your mind, because you're you're never going to get this deal again. It was like the pre-sale offer. So just buy your ticket. And if you change your mind, like you'll be able to sell it to someone so easily because these the this event will sell out. And so I was like, fine. And I'm so glad I went to the second year because that year blew my mind and and made me want to create economy. And so I think that it's not only deciding if the cost is worth it. So much of what a make makes an event a magical experience is the energy that you bring to it. I've been to FinCon where it was the best event I've ever gone to. And then I went to another FinCon and it sucked for me. And you know why? It was because I wasn't in the right mental place to show up and like get the most out of the experience. So it's not it's not all on the event organizer. It the the attendees are as much the product as they are the customer. So it's 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 tricky. It's it's a risk. Uh, I'll just say that it's a risk. Jess, same question. How do you kind of decide as a consumer specifically whether it's worth the value to put that money down, maybe spend 500, 700, a thousand dollars to do something like this? Yeah. So for me, I think when when I was coming up with pricing, I did think about what are events that I'm willing to go to, right? And willing to spend the money on and realize that if there's an event that I feel like is tailored to me, right? If I feel like it's, you know, going to be something that's like, these are my people who are at this event, I'm willing to pay a lot more for an event like that than I am for, you know, that I would actually want to pay a lot more for an event like that than to pay a small amount of money to go to something that I feel like I'm not going to get a lot out of. So for example, like different events that I have attended before. So I attended the Sense Positive, one of the Sense Positive retreats that Tanya Hester put on. Actually, Diana, that's where we met Yeah, in Chicago. And, you know, that one, I don't remember what the ticket price was, like $400 or something. I don't know. But I flew in for it. I paid for a hotel, right? So like all in that cost is probably, you know, $1,500 at least. And then I was planning to attend Jillian John Johnsrud's Adventures to Fi retreat that was canceled because of COVID. But that one, like, I think the ticket was like $1,200 and it didn't include the lodging or the food, you know? And so for that one, right, and flying out to Montana for that, I think I was going to be, you know, that was going to be like 2500 to $3,000 total. Um, but that, w- that was one that felt like it was going to be totally worth it to me because those were going to be my people, right, at that event. And I feel, you know, I feel similarly about economy as well, right, where these are these are going to be my people at this event, right? And so, so you know, I, I think sometimes, like for me, I'm willing to pay more if I know that like this message is specifically like tailored to me and I'm going to meet my people. And then I'm willing to pay a lot more if it's in a small group setting. Yeah, another consideration for me when we think about, you know, the cost of of a weekend event or or something, any event really is not so much the price in terms of dollars, but the opportunity cost of me being away from my wife, from my kids, asking her to take full responsibility for everything that the family has going on in those three or four days or whatever it might be. 
And and my wife is certainly willing to do it, and she does it quite often. But this isn't something I would do once a month, right? This is something I can do a handful of times, uh, maybe every other month or, or something like that. But I know that there's sort of a price to pay, pay, and then you know there there's some quid pro quo, and and I know that I'll be taking you know full responsibility for the family at other times when my wife has uh, different events or family obligations, and so. You know, oftentimes, you know, whether you're a speaker or an attendee or whatever it might be, you're paying a price in other ways. It has nothing to do with with money, but with being away from your family. And, you know, I have a freshman in high school and a seventh grader now, and they will only be with us for, you know, three to five more years. And like, these are still kind of precious times and they still kind of like us. So I say no more than I say uh, yes to uh, invitations to uh, you know, attend or or be uh, a speaker at, at different events. I just want to mention that is something that I hear a lot when people say, I really want to go, but I have five trips this year and I need, you know, like I went to economy last year. And so I want to try something new this year because I only, I have a limited amount that I get each year, each year. One solution that I thought was very creative that some economy attendees have done is they will bring the grandparents, bring the kids. Everybody comes, the whole family comes, the parents get to, you know, go to the event during the day. And then their kids get a little vacation with the grandparents or whoever they have taking care of them. I know a number of people who do that for economy and other conferences. Not saying that's possible every time, right? But but it could be a, you know, a way to make it work sometimes. Well, I wanted to thank all of you for coming on the show today. We started with this question whether fire has become elitist. And what I take from this talk that we've had is in a sense it has. I mean, I think what happened in the beginning of the movement is it was based on our values and our values at the time, the values of the very early beginning fire movement was saving money and being frugal above all else in this idea of that's what made you free. But I think as the fire movement has evolved, what people have actually found is what financial freedom feels like is not a number. It's not a net worth. It's not how much you save. It's actually spending money on those things you care about so that you can live the life you want to live. And so it has changed. It has evolved in a sense. It you know, you could call it elitist or elite, right? It's moved to a different level in which the absence of spending is not what now defines a lot of people in this movement. It's actually spending on things that make their life better. And I think if you come at or come to this community very much of that beginning fire movement ethos, it will feel a little disconnected. And I think that's okay because what's wonderful about things like conferences is you have the choice to go or not to go. And people like Jess and Diana, not only do they get your email feedback, but every year they look at how many people attended and how many people felt it was worthwhile and how many people do the early signups for the next conference. And what we're finding is that with a lot of these things, especially when they're well done, that enough people value them that they're willing to put their money down and pay for them. And that's okay. And it's okay if you're not. But that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the conference or anything wrong with the conference creators' beliefs about what the value should be or how much they need to charge in order to make the event work well. 
As always, I want to end this episode with giving you all the chance of telling people how they can reach you if they have more questions. Diana, let's start with you. If people want to know more about Economy or want to reach out to you directly, how can they do that? Sure. So you can head to economyconference.com and that's economy with an M-E at the end, not an M-Y, a little fun play on words. And there you can learn about the conference. You can see our incredible speaker lineup, our programming, full schedule for the weekend. You can buy your tickets there. The next event is March 15th through 17th of 2024. It's in Cincinnati, Ohio. And listeners of this show, if you like what you heard, feel free to use a 10% discount code, earn and invest, all one word. You can use that to buy your ticket. And then if you want to hear more of my ramblings, you can listen to me every single day of the week on Optimal Finance Daily. Leif Darlene, we used to be able to get in touch with you easily, but you stepped back from Physician on Fire. Tell us how people can reach out if they have questions for you. Well, Jordan knows how to get a hold of me, but I uh, <laughs> might as well throw my email address out there. It's leafdaleen at yahoo.com. Yeah, <laughs> that's my personal email. I'm not going to give you my cell phone number. That's, that's enough. <laughs> We're very intrusive here at Earn and Invest. We like to make sure our listeners really can, can get you at, even outside of your brand. And Jess of the Pioneers, if people want to know more about you, your platform, or your retreat, what is the best way for them to reach out? Yeah, they can find me at thefioneers.com. Um, and that's like pioneers or pioneers, but with an F for financial One independence. Words. <laughs> yep. And you can also find us on our YouTube channel. So YouTube at Pioneers. And if you want to learn more about the retreat or coaching or any of the other things that we do, yeah, find us there at the Pioneers. Leif Darlene, Diana Miriam, and Jessica from the Pioneers, thank you so much for being on Earn and Invest today. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Thanks a lot. so much. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. So I'll admit it. I've changed. I'm not the same person who I was when I discovered the financial independence retire early movement. Back then, I was much more interested in gaming the system. How do I save? How do I invest? How do I get my net worth to where I wanted it to be? It was enough to consume my thoughts, concerns, and worries for a few years. But then I had a problem. I got to where I wanted to be. I frugalized enough. I saved enough. I invested enough. I got to my net worth number. And yet I didn't feel any better, safer, or happier. I just had one less thing to worry about. I evolved. It was the time where I started thinking much more about what was important to me, not saving money, but what that money should do for my life. How not to necessarily be frugal, but to value the money I spent on things that were important to me. I changed. And over the years, the financial independence retire early movement has changed. You guys have heard me say this often. It started really with the idea of front-loading the sacrifice, saving lots and lots of money, and retiring from your job as fast as possible. That was the old model of FIRE, the model that really started to gain steam 
in the 2010 to 2018 years. On the other hand, since then, we've moved away from that model. People realize that front-loading the sacrifice is great, but why wait till tomorrow to enjoy life today? Why not start living the life you want to live today and save also for the future? See, the thing is we can do them both. And when you realize this nuance, when you realize that that single devotedness to saving and frugality and investing doesn't serve us, you start thinking differently about money. You certainly start to think differently about spending. It's what happened to me. I think it's what's happened to the FIRE movement. And the question is, are we going to resist this? Movements evolve, people change. The idea is to build on what our forebears created and make it better, improve it, allow it to encompass more people interested in what we are interested in. Nothing stays the same. So when Diana talked about those emails she got about the economy conference, that's a lot about what I thought about, is the fact that the movement has changed and is no longer the same movement that maybe some of those writers are wishing for. On the other hand, I might also mention that those writers may also be in the process of evolving too, and it may be in five or ten years that they think incredibly differently than they do today. They may change their ideas on frugality. They may decide that it's worth spending $500 or $1,000 to go to a conference, whereas now that's just not as important to them or they feel like it's not as good a use of their money. The problem with movements is that people who began the movement evolve, and new people who just start in the movement often haven't evolved to the same level as the people who've been in it for years and years and years. This is common. It's a real side effect of being involved in a movement in general. But that doesn't mean that either viewpoint is wrong, the truth of the matter is we can all make our own individual choices. You may decide that spending $500 on a conference is worthwhile and of value to you, whereas someone else may not. And it might be that we've just evolved differently or are at different points in our trajectory when it comes to financial independence. I will tell you the other side of this is that when someone puts together a conference like Diana has or just does... These conferences take a lot of time, money, and energy, and often, even if you don't love paying the $500, it probably is a good deal for what went into making the conference. I know it's hard to believe that if you've never created something like this, but being a content producer, I get to see the other side. But either way, the choice is up to you. What do you value and spend your money accordingly? All right, I leave things running just for the after show, so I'm still recording. Anything we didn't say, Diana, you were Diana, you were definitely the impetus for this. Um, and this hits very much in all of our wheelhouse as creators, because the feedback we get is always it's hard, right? Especially when it's not necessarily the most optimistic or whether it's constructive, hopefully constructive criticism. Um, anything we didn't talk about that you feel like was really important to this conversation? You know, I 
I keep coming back to this word deprivation because that's kind of what we started talking about at the beginning of the episode and how there's this misconception that fire is all about deprivation. And I would argue that if you feel deprivation, I would examine why, right? Because if you are out of debt, if you are saving any money, if you if you are financially literate, I mean, the people in this community are so incredibly fortunate. And um, I just, I, I felt when I first started getting into this that I realized I was wasting my privilege. I think it was a big reason why I kind of like snapped out of living paycheck to paycheck. Um, but I have deprived myself when I first started getting into fire, you know, I got out of 30 grand of debt in 11 months. And that was just from me refusing to spend money. And I think it was very good for me to experience that at that time in my life. Um, it wasn't a true hardship, but I did feel deprived. And that feeling of like, I want to go do that thing. I wish I could do that, but I'm, I won't let myself. That to me is a deep emotional issue. That's a form of self vindictiveness that needs to be examined. And that has nothing to do with money. There is no amount of money that will fix that attitude. And so, um, I, I just think if you, if you are pursuing fire and you feel deprived in any way, um, recognize that money will not solve that problem. Yeah. You know, it's funny because we have this on one side and I 100% agree with you, but I think if you are on social media or even reading all these fire or geo arbitrage blogs or content, there's definitely some kind of FOMO and YOLO too. I mean, we're also seeing all these people who are talking about fire all the time, traveling the world and doing all these cool things. And so, you know, the other side is it's hard because there's it's such a big world out there with so many things. And now it's so easy for us to see on social media and blogs and podcasts and Instagram, et cetera. It's almost hard to feel like you're not being deprived because someone is living better than you. And most yeah, likely that, you're seeing them on a regular basis. I think that became part of like the physician on fire brand. Like I wanted to show people that fire wasn't all about frugality. That was like the goal because. So many people were turned off just right away from the idea of financial independence because all they knew or heard about was the brown bananas, rice and beans crowd, you know, people living on $20,000 a year. And they're like, that would never work for me. And I knew that wasn't going to work for me either. And I wanted to show people, actually, you can get to financial independence, still have children, still take them all over the world, still do really cool stuff, still you know, enjoy the things you enjoy, go to, you know, get season tickets or to the, you know, to Broadway or to your football team or basketball team, whatever, just like, it's not all about deprivation. And if you feel deprived, you're doing it wrong, at least, uh, you know, in my mind. So yeah, I, I very intentionally kind of showed people that, yeah, you, you can still do these good things. So maybe I'm part of the problem. Like I'm, I'm, I'm one of those people <laughs> oh, that moved fault, beyond <laughs> uh, the whole like, you know, lean fire thing. And no, um, they say it's it, it's not for them. Well, you know, they teach their own different strokes for different folks. Yeah. I also think complaining about how much things cost, especially when you have no context as to why they cost what they cost. Um it it to me it screams victim mentality you know and it i just think 
that that's a terrible way to live. Like these people who wrote me this email, did they also write the hotel to complain about how much the hotel costs or the airline? You know, do they also want a Tesla, but that's too expensive. So they wrote Tesla and told them, you know, bitched at them for how much it costs. Like, I just, I think you're focused on the wrong thing. And I think it's, it's, it's very disempowering to say, I can't have that because it's too expensive. I think it would be a much more helpful approach to say, life is abundant. I can have whatever I want. Now let me figure out what I want. And now I have a better um, state of mind to go after it, you know, versus um, I need to change the world around me to fit my, you know, perceptions of what I think is fair and what I deserve. Yeah, very much Paula Pant, right? Can afford anything, but not everything. Yeah, yeah. Like, so what, what do you value? Yeah. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday. So listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.